The setting was a lonely, rocky hillside in Judea, out in the wilderness, and where nobody but God himself could see. There was a battle raging. This wasn't a battle with great armies, with soldiers, with spears, and with swords. This was a battle of wills. It was a battle against sin and temptation. And there were only two fighters in this battle. The evil one, the devil, Satan, that serpent of old, confronting the Son of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan threw everything he had at Jesus because at all costs, Satan had a goal and that was to keep Christ from going to the cross to pay for the sins of humanity. Because if Christ doesn't go to the cross, then sin will reign and Satan's temporary dominion on earth would become permanent. And so Satan, knowing that he couldn't overpower the Son of God, instead he attempted attempted to entice Jesus to entice him to declare his independence from the heavenly realm and to rebel against his own heavenly father. And although Jesus was weak from 40 days of fasting, even when offered instant food, when offered the chance to publicly show his glory to all the world, and when offered the chance to rule the world without having to go to the cross, if only Jesus would bow down and worship Satan, when offered quite literally everything there is to be had on earth, Jesus beat down these attacks of the enemy. He resisted the wiles of the devil. He was impervious to the temptations of Satan. And three times Satan came at him with a vicious attack. And three times Jesus destroyed the attack with words. When Satan tempted the hungry Jesus to use his power for himself, to turn stones into bread, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Satan tempted Jesus to show his true glory by throwing himself off the temple tower and having the angels save him, Jesus said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when Satan showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and offered them all to Jesus without him having to go to the cross, Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve And Satan left him three times. It is written, it is written, it is written. Now, where did Jesus get these powerful words of spiritual armor, which successfully beat down Satan himself? All from the book of Deuteronomy. It's been since last November that we finished our overview of the book of Numbers, all part of our ongoing series that we've been chipping away at on Sunday nights going through the entire Pentateuch. And so tonight we're going to begin this amazing book of Deuteronomy. So you can turn to Deuteronomy 1. Now I know many of you here, even tonight, are fairly new to grace. So I want to highly suggest that you go back and listen to a series called the Pentateuch Series 1. The Pentateuch Series 1. It's just five messages on how to understand the entire Pentateuch. I think that will be helpful to you because we're going through this at a relatively rapid rate. At the, at the very first message I preached, we said we're, we're not walking through it, neither are we flying through it. We're sort of at the pace of being on a train to go through it. Pretty fast, but enough to see the scenery on the way. And then you'll see that Pentateuch Series 2, we have 11 messages in Genesis, Pentateuch Series 3 in Exodus and so forth. 
And so tonight we'll begin in Deuteronomy by doing what we've done with the other four books, and that is just talking about how to understand Deuteronomy. So let's begin. Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. We'll read the preamble here to the whole book, the first five verses. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Sair to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, and that's where we'll go tonight. So what do we see right off from verse 5? We see that Deuteronomy is a series of talks that Moses gives to Israel. This is a series of sermons. Some divide it into three, some into four, some even into five. We're not going to mess with that. I don't think that's the real structural issue of Deuteronomy. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Israel now has escaped the bondage of Egypt by the miraculous power of God. They've been formed into the official nation, the chosen nation of God at Mount Sinai. But you recall that they rebelled. And right when they were about to take the promised land, which God had deeded to them, they lost faith as a nation with the exception of a very few. And so God disciplined them by having them wander in the wilderness for nearly 40 years until all the generation who had rebelled died off. And now only Moses, his second in command, Joshua and Caleb, both of those who had been the faithful, two of the faithful spies in the Canaan who trusted God's ability to defend Israel. Only these are left of the previous generation. And except for those three, the, the oldest person in all the camp is 59 years old because all the others have died. And so now on the plains of Moab, on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, and if you've been to Israel, you know, you get there and you go, this place isn't that big. Like you can throw rocks from one town to another. It's just a little tiny place. So they could literally look across the river and see the land that they're about to go to. This isn't like being in California and, and somehow thinking about Kentucky. This is just right across the river. They could see it. And so now here they are, and Moses is going to repeat much of what has been taught previously. Now, I want to encourage you to commit to hearing all these messages because they really build on one another. And we're going to be going through all the chapters of Deuteronomy in about 10 more messages. So we're going to, if you miss one week, you're going to blink and go, hey, where, what happened here? I won't be able to go back and review everything every time. So this is where we are. And what I'd like to do is just give you five fundamental ideas to help you understand Deuteronomy. Five fundamental ideas, fundamental ideas. The first fundamental idea we'll call the renewal of covenant. The renewal of covenant. When you talk about Deuteronomy, you must keep central the idea of covenant. It's really considered to be the theological center of the book. Moses is now preaching to the younger generation of Israelites. Most of those still alive now had been born in the wilderness. They didn't know any other life. They had never known a home nation of their own. And so in, in many respects, what is God doing through Moses? He's bringing them back to Mount Sinai. Many of them weren't even there. 
And so he's bringing them back. And in fact, the name Deuteronomy means second law. It's not really a second law. It's just a renewal of the covenant law that God made with Israel at Sinai almost 40 years earlier. And you may recall the basis of the covenant. It's in the form of what those in the ancient Near East called a suzerain vassal treaty. Somebody asked me to spell suzerain. It's S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N. So S-U-Z-E, reign. Suzerain vassal treaty. What is a suzerain? That's just a fancy name for the king who's bigger than you are. A great king of a great nation. He's the conquering king or he may be the rescuing king. And as far as the suzerain is concerned, that was the same thing. That in other words, if a suzerain conquered a nation, they considered that they had rescued the nation from their own stupidity. The vassal, on the other hand, was the smaller nation, now in the service to the suzerain, the great king, and in the debt of the suzerain, the great king. The suzerain king would make a treaty, a covenant with the small nation that he had either conquered or rescued. And this treaty would have specific elements, which I'll outline in just a bit. But the basic idea of the treaty is this. Obey me and I will love and protect and bless you. Disobey me and I will bring more pain than you can possibly imagine into your lives. That was the basic idea. Now, this was what was behind the success of some of the great empires of the ancient Near East, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks. And when I say great, I'm speaking in size, not in quality or making a moral judgment, just great in the fact that they lasted a long time. Why were they successful? Because the majority of the time, they didn't come in and just simply crush their enemies. What they did was very often, they actually offered a pretty good deal to the smaller nations that couldn't possibly defend themselves against a massive army. That's why these kingdoms spread so quickly. Representatives, just as an example, from the Assyrians would go to a bunch of little nations and they would say, look, here's the deal. We're going to start charging you some taxes. And in, 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 along with that, we're going to be sending some government officials to oversee everything that's happening here. In exchange for that, uh, these, these bad Egyptians down the road, these are, uh, these are some bad guys and we're going to protect you from them. And uh, this group over here, they're getting a little bit uh, restless. We're going to protect you from them and we'll help your economy. We'll trade with one another. Now, there'll be some, some trade-offs as well. We're going to take some of your people back to our homeland and we're going to take some of the best of what you have. But in exchange for that, we'll protect you. If you don't want to do this, then we'll just come destroy you. You know what most nations did? They said, sounds like a good deal. Where do I sign? Because when your nation is the size of New Jersey and a nation the size of Texas comes and says, we'd like to partner with you. That sounds good. I think we'll do that. That was the basic idea. So it wasn't always negative. And so in this case, God, the suzerain, the great king has given Israel a treaty, a covenant in a form that they would recognize. Now, we said this at the very beginning when we did Pentateuch series one, but I'll remind you of this now. Why did God bring the family of Jacob, just 70 people to Egypt to have them grow into millions of people there and then be enslaved so that God would have to rescue them? What position does that put Israel in? They are now beholden to God because he rescued them as a nation. What does that make Israel? The vassal nation. And so it created an obligation. Then they have this covenant now. And this covenant is in a form that they would recognize. The covenant is summarized in the Ten Commandments, first given in Exodus 20. 
All the other 600 plus laws of the Pentateuch are in some way, shape or form an outworking or an explanation of one of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, we talked about this when we went through Exodus. The two tablets of the commandments that are so often depicted as having uh, number one, two, three, four, five on one tablet and six, seven, eight, nine, ten on the other tablet for some reason in Roman numerals, which hadn't been invented yet, but that's just the way they are. <laughs> that's not what happened. Tablet number one had one through ten. Tablet number two had one through ten. Why? Because in the suzerain vassal treaty, you made two copies of the covenant and you took one copy to one nation and one copy to the other nation. And the copies of those covenants were taken and put into the temple of your God. Where did both copies go? They went into the Ark of the Covenant. Because in this case, it's the same. So why is the idea of covenant so important in Deuteronomy? Because the covenants of the Bible, the covenants that God makes, these are the vehicles, these are the wheels that carry the redemptive plan of God forward in the Bible. These are the vehicles. This is what what, uh, gets us all the way to the end of the Bible. Now, this covenant was designed with an expiration date. It expired the day Christ died on the cross, thereby bringing in the new covenant. This covenant, sometimes called, most commonly called the Mosaic Covenant, but it wasn't a covenant with Moses. Uh, I like the Israelite covenant. It was a covenant with Israel. But this covenant, like all the other covenants in the Bible, was wholly initiated by God. It was a covenant given in his grace and in his kindness. God reached out to form a relationship with this nation, which he had made in the first place. And so it's important to keep in mind that Deuteronomy is very much about covenant renewal, If I could summarize it this way, it's like God is saying 40 years ago, I made this same covenant with your parents. Now it's time for you to hear it and to sign your copy of the covenant. That's what Deuteronomy is about. This is a second fundamental idea, the theology of God, the theology of God. Now I know that's somewhat of a, uh, somewhat of a redundant repetitivism. Um, Let's call it theology proper. Deuteronomy stands as one of our great sources of understanding about God in all of the Bible, really. And I just, I just want to walk through a list of some of the things we learn about God. You really could come to faith in Christ through Deuteronomy because not only does Deuteronomy tell us, tell us of Christ, but it tells us all we need to know of God. Just a short list. First of all, he is God of all creation. He is God of all creation. He must be the only true God since he created all things. Deuteronomy 4.32 states clearly that God is the creator. Now, when we went through these five messages at at the beginning of this whole series, I walked through the 80 different places in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy where God shows that he is in direct competition with to defeat the idea of false gods. And so we have this idea that God is the creator. If he's the creator, therefore, he is the only true and living God. It's the second thing we learn about God. He is a God of loving election. He's a God of loving election. Deuteronomy 10.22, Moses reminds Israel that it's the Lord who formed them into a nation. Deuteronomy 26 gives instruction about an offering that the people are, are to give once they come to live in the land. And when they give the offering, the worshiper is to make a verbal response. Listen to this response in Deuteronomy 26.5. And you shall make a response before the Lord your God. Here's what you were to say. A wandering Aramean was my father. 
What's, that's a biblical way of saying a homeless guy. <laughs> a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. Here it is and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. How do they translate this Hebrew idea of the one who chose you? We get our word election from that. He is a God of loving election. Third, we see he's a God of redeeming grace. He's a God of redeeming grace. If he has chosen Israel, then he will save Israel. That makes sense. That's logical. Deuteronomy 5, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 6, 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And of course, as a New Testament Christian, you, you're immediately thinking about the book of Romans that you've been rescued from slavery to what? To sin. And so, he is a God of redeeming grace. Fourth, we see he's a God of overwhelming power. He's a God of overwhelming power. Deuteronomy 3.24, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Deuteronomy 4.3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. There's a fifth thing we learn about God. He is a God of fierce jealousy. He is a God of fierce jealousy. Deuteronomy 4.34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did before you, did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He was jealous for his people, and he went and took them out of the nation to which they had been enslaved. Here's the sixth thing we learn about God. He is a God of benevolent goodness. He's a God of benevolent goodness. This is all just Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 1.10, the Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. In a culture in which having a son was a blessing, having two sons was a double blessing, having five or 10 sons was considered amazing. This is an entire nation. It's come from one man. Deuteronomy 7, 12 and 13, because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you and multiply you. He is a God of benevolent goodness. We also learn seventh that he's a God of righteous discipline. He's a God of righteous discipline. Deuteronomy 4, 27. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And listen, this generation hearing this would be very poignantly aware of the fact that God is a God of righteous discipline because all their parents and grandparents are dead. And they knew why. Eighth, he's a God of perfect faithfulness. He's a God of perfect faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 9. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And one more, this one's a a little weightier in some ways. He is a God of transcendence yet nearness. He is a God of transcendence yet nearness. That's as short as I could make this. Let me put it this way. He is an unknowable God who has made himself known. In the physical manifestations of God in Deuteronomy, theophanies, there's about 10 of them, he manifests himself most every time in the form of fire or light and a cloud or darkness. This is a very beautiful illustration of the fact that yes, God has made himself known as in the fire, but there is also an inaccessible mystery to God that seems to be represented in the darkness Theologians call this dichotomy the imminence, the nearness of God, the fact that he's made himself knowable, and the transcendence of God, the fact that he is unknowable except if he reveals himself. In fact, these theophanies, they made the covenant between Israel and God a reality. God wasn't asking people to just take Moses' word for it. They could see his glory. They were making a covenant with a God who was revealing himself in a physical manifestation that they could come out of their tent and go, look, there is the glory of God. He showed himself to be infinitely transcendent on the one hand. Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. That's as big as they could fathom. And on the other hand, He's a God who's intimately near. To put it in terms we can relate to, chapter 10, verse 4, God is said to write. Chapter 23, verse 14, he is said to walk. Chapter 9, verse 12, he is said to talk with Moses. Deuteronomy 4, 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Put the transcendence and the nearness of God together in one place. Deuteronomy 7.21, You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, near, a great and awesome God, transcendent, infinitely transcendent, and intimately near at the same time. You want to know your God? Read Deuteronomy, and you will meet him face to face. There's a third fundamental idea, the theology of the nations. The theology of the nations. Deuteronomy has much to show us about God's view of the nations of the world. I just want to give you a few thoughts, four or five of them. First of all, the nations are used by God for God's purposes. They're used by God for God's purposes. In Deuteronomy 4.34, Israel is said to have been taken by God from the midst of another nation, emphasizing again God's loving election. Deuteronomy 28.36 predicts that in the future when Israel has rejected God that another nation will become their master. This is fulfilled first in Babylon and then in Assyria. I'm sorry, Assyria, then in Babylon. And so other nations are used for God's disciplinary purposes. And it's important to keep this in mind. All the nations of the earth are pawns in the hand of a sovereign God. There's a second thought. Nations are judged for wickedness and idolatry. Nations are judged for wickedness and idolatry. Israel was to be used by God to drive the Canaanites out of the land, which rightfully belonged to Israel through God's covenant with Abraham. Deuteronomy 7 begins, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
and clears away the many nations before you. And then there's a list of the nations. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Uh, Just as a side note here, there is such a huge debate in, in the church of Jesus Christ about the ethics of war when Israel goes to conquer Canaan. This is such a simple theological problem to solve. You can solve it right now. Finish this thought. The wages of sin is death. God may give those wages of sin any way he chooses, and he chose in this case to use the nation of Israel as his instrument of justice. It was three million police officers going to execute judgment on the wicked. Here's a third thought. Wicked nations are not to be imitated. Wicked nations are not to be imitated. Here's the irony that God had to warn Israel. These nations you're about to go judge as my instrument. Don't copy them. Israel was warned in Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 29, not to imitate the idolatry of the nations around them. And when we did these five messages, one of the things I, at the very beginning, one of the things I tried to emphasize was that it's important to understand that Israel, listen carefully, Israel was the only group of people on planet earth that believed that there was only one true living God. And even they generally, because they were, they were all polytheistic from having grown up in Egypt, even they tended to believe that there were lots of gods. Yahweh just happened to be the biggest and the best one. And so you have a world that is saturated in polytheism, in multiple gods. And so Israel is warned, don't imitate their idolatry. In Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, Israel was warned not to imitate their political structure. Don't try to be like them. God is your king. And so wicked nations are not to be imitated. When anybody says, well, our country should do something because this country is doing it. Biblically speaking, that's the dumbest thing in the world. We say we should do something because it is right, it is true. We don't look to others as our example. Wicked nations are not to be imitated. Here's a fourth thought, and the last two are related. The fourth thought is nations are a permanent part of God's redemptive plan. Nations are a permanent part of God's redemptive plan. Deuteronomy 32, 43 says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children. Rejoice with him, O heavens. I want to spend a moment on this. This is somewhat of a very unfortunate translation. The Hebrew word goy, goyim, plural, is used 555 times in the Old Testament, and it never means heavens, ever. This is a rare example of a translation that is more traditional than it is linguistic in nature because it's traditional to translate it heavens. Why? Probably because it brings up a a, um, theological issue that's controversial, and so it's a way to avoid that. But goyim always means nations, peoples. Rejoice with him, O nations. In other words, there will be a day when the nations made up of peoples who have come to true and genuine faith through Christ, that they will rejoice at what? That he avenges the blood of his children. They'll rejoice in the justice of God on earth. And so nations are a permanent part of God's redemptive plan. One more thought. Israel as a nation is a permanent part of God's redemptive plan. 
Israel as a nation is a permanent part of God's redemptive plan. Deuteronomy 27, 9, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. The people of the Lord your God. It's not the word goyim that I just talked about that we might expect, which means any people gathered together as a nation. No, it's a different word. It's very specific. It's the Hebrew word ham, which means a specific ethnicity descended from a specific person. Therefore, can you say, well, Israel is just the collection of all the people who have ever believed in Christ? Not scripturally, no. Israel has been defined, is currently defined, and always will be defined as the saved descendants of 12 sons from one father named Jacob, renamed Israel. That is Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, 12 says, The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. What does that say? That says that there will be a day when Israel as a nation is the greatest place on earth. That you, you as a nation go to the bank of Israel. That hasn't happened yet. Deuteronomy 18.15 and following Moses explains prophetically that God will raise up a prophet similar to Moses in the future. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, hear this very carefully. When it says it is to him you shall listen, this isn't a command to listen. This isn't what it's saying. This is a verb form that predicts that they will listen to him. You see the difference? It's a prediction that they will listen. They will follow this prophet who is like Moses. In fact, in Acts 3.22, Peter is preaching to the people of Jerusalem at the temple and he confirms that Jesus Christ is this prophet who is to come to whom Israel will listen. Well, they haven't listened to him yet as a nation, have they? In fact, Israel crucified Christ. But there is a day when they will listen. Isaiah 54.13 predicts that that when the Lord, the Messiah, is reigning on the earth, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That doesn't mean that they'll be taught by Sunday school teachers who are opening their Bibles. It means they will be taught by the Lord himself. In fact, the nations, including Israel, will be taught of the Lord in the coming kingdom. If we stepped outside of Deuteronomy once again, Isaiah 2, verse 3, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Listen, even now in the church, don't we have this sense of joy when we think about um, what we might call uh, uh, spiritual hubs? The first time I went to Grace Community Church to uh, Shepherd's Conference, they have a nickname down there. They call it uh, Spiritual Disneyland because you just feel like all these believers from all over the world on a beautiful campus and you just have the sense of, wow, this is where things are happening. We're built to desire that. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ is made up of countless little bodies like ours all over the world, but at our core, don't we yearn to all come together in one central place? We do, and that's what will be happening. And so even in Deuteronomy, we get a flavor for God's overarching plan for the world, for the nations, that someday 
the nations will worship Christ at the capital nation of the world and his beloved Israel through whom all the blessings of salvation have come to all who would trust Christ is now preeminent. Let me give you a fourth fundamental idea. The form of the covenant. The form of the covenant. I debate in my own mind whether to talk to you about literary structure or not in a sermon. But the structure of Deuteronomy is inspired by God. Therefore, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So let's talk about the form. The very structure of Deuteronomy itself is formed around the well-known covenant structure in the ancient Near East that we talked about, the suzerain-vassal treaty. We've already mentioned this, but you might ask, well, how do you know that's what it is? Well, it follows a very standard format. There are some variations to the structure, but it's stunningly clear that Deuteronomy is a treaty. It's a covenant between the great King Yahweh and the little nation Israel. And it goes something like this. There is a preamble or covenant setting. We just read that aloud, the first five verses of Deuteronomy. This is an introduction to the treaty. This is found in those first five verses, and it just sets the stage. It says what we're about to do. The next part of the structure, the form, you get something called the historical prologue or the history. The historical prologue. This is a review of all the events that led to the making of this covenant. It speaks of how gracious the suzerain, the great king, has been to the vassal, the little nation who's conquered or rescued. So if this is the case, what should we expect in the first few, ver- first few chapters of Deuteronomy? We should expect history. We should expect a review. And that's exactly what we get. Deuteronomy 1, verse 6 through chapter 4, verse 40 forms this historical section. And then there's sort of a, a, a nine or ten verses that are uh, a transition Then you get to the third section, general stipulations of the covenant, general stipulations or or rules, general rules of the covenant. These are broad explanations, generally speaking, what is required of the vassal nation. Now, if Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant at Mount Sinai, what would you expect to be repeated in the general stipulations, the Ten Commandments? What's the first thing that gets repeated in the general stipulations section, the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy's general stipulations are given from chapter 5, verse 1, to the very end of chapter 11. That's just the general ways that the, the vassal nation is to follow the great king. Then you get to the fourth section called specific stipulations or specific rules. How are the general stipulations now lived out in the daily life in the land that Israel is about to possess. The suzerain would then give very precise laws about how his principles in the general stipulations are to be carried out. And in Deuteronomy 12 through 26, we see very specific laws about the worship center of Israel, the abomination of pagan gods, the evil of false prophets, clean and unclean animals to show Israel as a set-apart and holy nation, the tribute and offerings to be given to the sovereign king, to God. How the kingdom is to be run in terms of judges, officials, kings, priests, and prophets. There's civil law for the people. There's laws concerning impurity. There's laws about interpersonal relationships and laws about continued covenant confirmation and celebration. All kinds of very specific stipulations. And listen, this is glorious. 
it is an exact way to live before God in a way that is pleasing to him in a society in which theoretically everybody wants to do the same thing. Then you get to a fifth section. The Suzerain Vassal Treaty has a section commonly called blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. That if the conquered or rescued nation would obey the suzerain, the great king, then tremendous value and blessing and prosperity and success will be theirs. But if the nation rebels against the great king, then tremendous curses would fall upon them. Deuteronomy 27 and 28 provides the blessings and the curses, the promises from God. And listen, Deuteronomy 28, if you have small children, you should read that to them. They will do anything you ask for five years (laughs) because it is severe. It is severe. It's like a father who says, my son, if you do what I ask, I'm going to bless you in these three ways and your life will be so sweet. But if you don't do what I ask, I will take the door off your hinges. Your mattress will be a a rack of nails. You're going to be working in the backyard. You're going to dig holes. You're going to move rocks from this side of the yard to that one. And then you're going to move them onto the roof. I'm going to have you uh, repaint the entire house. You're going to change the oil in the car 19 times before uh, sundown. You're going to do this and this. And on top of that, we're going to have a spanking every 20 minutes for a month. Then I'm going to really get mad. You read Deuteronomy 28 and you go, yes, Lord, you are my king. And you know what that does? What it's meant to do is break the will of your sin nature to just say, I give in. I want to live a holy life. I don't want to be at odds with a God so infinitely more powerful than I am. Now, when you bought your house, when you even uh, made some sort of uh, legal contract, what do you have to do? You have to get a witness. You have to go pay 20 bucks to another republic to be a witness. And that's the sixth section. Covenant witnesses are provided. Covenant witnesses. Just like we take a contract to another republic to witness our agreement, God provides witnesses. There are three witnesses plus a bonus witness. See if you can hear the three. I'll just kind of uh, quickly walk through Deuteronomy 31, beginning of verse 24. See if you can identify the three. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and there it may be a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today... While I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. So what are the three witnesses? The law itself, heaven and earth. How can you call heaven and earth as a witness? Because who else are you going to call? You're witnessing God signing this covenant as well. And there's a bonus witness. Chapter 32, God gives Moses a song to teach Israel, to remind them of the covenant promises they've made. And this song has 43 verses. This is a detailed witness that God will keep his promises and the disaster that will fall on Israel if she doesn't obey. And I, this, is, this is delightful. 
Imagine, dads, that you sit down with your little child and you begin to teach them a song. And you, you say something to the effect of, we're going to learn a song today that if you steal daddy's hanky, you're going to get a great big spanky. <laughs> Let's sing it together. And you teach verse after verse after verse. And every day you rehearse this song, sing the song, and your child, and they sing it. And then they steal the hanky. And whether you do, you say, sing the song. It is a witness against them. Son, what am I supposed to do? Spanking. That is a righteous, holy God. Great way to parent. Four witnesses. The Torah itself, heaven, earth, and a great big long song. And then at the end, you get the historical prologue, the conclusion. Deuteronomy 33 and 34 provides this. This wraps everything up. Listen, this structure is important enough that we're not going to worry about whether Moses preached three, four, or five sermons because that's not the structure. The structure is covenantal in nature. And so we're going to actually follow that pretty closely in our messages. I'll try to identify where, where we are in the treaty structure each week. Now, there's a huge difference between the typical suzerain vassal treaty in this covenant of Deuteronomy, aside from the obvious difference that the suzerain, in this case, the great king, is not a human king, but God himself. Here's the big difference. The big difference is that this treaty, this covenant, is based in love. It is based in the love that the great king has for his people. Let's do one more fundamental idea. This is really kind of the key idea in, in Deuteronomy in many ways. We'll call this the centralization of worship. The centralization of worship. And I'd like to have you turn with me to chapter 12. Chapter 12 has been given more attention by scholars than any other portion of Deuteronomy because the theme of this chapter is so vital to the rest of the book, the centralization of worship. And let's just see if we can identify a couple of key themes here. Chapter 12, verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Chapter 12, verse 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Chapter 12, verse 14. But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. Verse 18. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. Verse 21. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you. Verse 26, but the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord shall choose. What do we see in those six verses? The place that the Lord shall choose six times over. 21 times in all of Deuteronomy. The greatest concentration is here in chapter 12, but this is important. And three of those verses we just read contain an important, another important element back in verse 5. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name. Verse 11, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Verse 21, if the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name. 
This concept of God putting his name somewhere is not very familiar to us, is very familiar to the Israelites in the ancient Near East hearing Moses speak. And I want to camp on this for a moment. In the ancient Near East, the idea of putting the name of a king or maybe even the name of a God somewhere, it had three possible expressions. First of all, to put your name somewhere as a king, to physically have your name written was to claim ownership. It was to claim ownership. If a conquering king left his name in the city, he said, that belongs to me now. The king's name served the same purpose that our flag serves today. This is my territory. The second expression of the name, similar to the first, the king's name was put on a victory monument that back in the home country and in the capital city, the name of the king was inscribed on a monument to his conquest of a foreign city or nation and then third expression of the name, the name of a, of a pagan god was inscribed on the foundation stones of the temples to identify that temple as only being used for that god. The name was put on the main foundation stone, sometimes called the cornerstone, so that the temple couldn't be repurposed and turned into a Starbucks or something. That it was always going to be belong to the one whose name was there. And in reality, all three of those concepts apply to Deuteronomy. First, the place where God to be worshipped is his possession. It belongs to him. Second, he was, as it were, victorious over Israel as he rescued them and they were therefore beholden to him. And third, the place where God was to be worshipped had his name as sort of a spiritual signature. That God has placed his stamp of approval on the place that he has chosen for worship. And what is the place that he has chosen for worship? Ultimately, it would be Jerusalem, the center of God's redemptive plan for mankind. That's where his name would be. But is just the place so important? It is absolutely important in the context of the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But there's a deeper and there's a more heart-related issue concerning the centralization of worship. And that's the fact that the centralization of worship is pointing Israel toward a theology of pure worship versus false worship, that you will worship in the way, and in this case, physically in the place that I have designated. And this theology of pure worship now takes it beyond the place that just going to the right place doesn't make true worship. That's a start, but it doesn't make true worship. In chapter 12 here, we see God's insistence on the separation, the differentness, the uniqueness, the heart of true faith, the heart of a, a true worshiper of Yahweh. And we see this in a series of contrasts. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. What's the contrast? The contrast is between here in verse 8 and there in verse 7. That the nation is to grow up and not be like the rebellious adolescent nation which has wandered the wilderness. Once you, that we arrive home, it's down to business. So another contrast, verses 2 and 4. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Verse four, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. What's the contrast? The contrast is between their gods and the Lord your God. There's another contrast in verses three and five. 
You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Verse five, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. What's the contrast between the name of their gods and the name of Yahweh? All of these stipulations serve to point out a theology of pure worship versus false worship that Israel cannot self-style their worship of God. Israel's worship was not to resemble false pagan worship in any way. In fact, verses 2, 3, and 4, I won't read them, are very similar to the last four verses of the book, both of them warnings about not being like the other nations, not worshiping as they used to worship the false gods. They weren't to resemble pagan worship in any way. No icons, no religious practices, anything like them. As a matter of fact, pagan worship, it always has an air of the horrific, an air of the macabre. It has an air of darkness to it because pagan gods are generally pictured as violent, impetuous, unreliable gods who are cosmic spoiled children who have to be appeased and kept happy. And so you have horrific things like the burial of live babies into the ground to appease the gods of fertility. You have human sacrifice of burning children alive. You have the giving of your sons over for human sacrifice. But the worship of Yahweh, and yes, it's centered on shed blood because this pictures atonement and payment for sin. The worship of the true and living God is in total contrast to pagan worship. It's to be characterized by joy and exaltation and happiness. Look at verse seven. There you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice. Verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters. Verse 18, you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. This is radical because a, a pagan Worshiping their false gods would never be said to rejoice going to the temple of their God. It's something that they got over with. And so as God is slowly revealing his redemptive plan, the lesson here in Deuteronomy is something like this. No one comes to God except through faith, which is expressed in the centralized worship of God's people in one singular place. And by this, a person may legally approach God for forgiveness and reconciliation. I'll give you a shorter version. No one comes to God except through right temple worship by faith. Now, with the coming of Christ, God's redemptive plan unfolds further with perfect consistency. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, so you might be saying, okay, so under the Israelite covenant, no one comes to God except the right temple worship by faith. But will that change? Yes. 
Because now the centralization of worship is not focused on a place, but on a person. Now in the church age, it's not no one comes to God except through right temple worship by faith, still by faith, but now it is I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this makes total sense, doesn't it? Remember I told you that one of the ways the concept of name was used, that the name of the God was etched into the main foundation stone of the temple. Jesus quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, when he said of himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the main foundation stone. And the cornerstone is imprinted with the name of God, representing the very presence of God in whom? In Christ. And now the temple becomes redundant, doesn't it? Why go to a representation of God when you can, through Christ, approach God directly because of the mediation of the living cornerstone? But the principle is the same. If you're one of those who has heard, well, there are many pathways to God. There have never been many pathways to God. God is the only path. and God has one prescribed path. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. You may not attempt to come to God outside of Christ. You may not attempt to worship God in your own way. You may not attempt to self-style a relationship with God, calling him such blasphemous names as the man upstairs or the big man in the sky. We do not self-style. By the way, speaking of ownership, Remember that a king would claim ownership over a place or a thing by placing his name on it? You were baptized, literally immersed in what? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as early as Acts chapter 11, believers in the Lord Jesus were called Christians, little Christs. One last thing. The Israelite covenant does not directly apply to us today as our covenant. That was for national Israel to prepare the way for Christ to come and inaugurate the new covenant. But you remember the form of the covenant we went through, the the literary structure of Deuteronomy? Did you know those same elements are in the new covenant document? What is the new covenant document? It begins in Matthew 1.1, the story of Jesus Christ. We could look at a a preamble in historical prologue, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do we have general stipulations in the new covenant document, the new Testament? Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the general stipulation? Do everything that honors the gospel. How about specific stipulations? Every specific command in the New Testament, which Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 9 calls the law of Christ. Those are specific stipulations. How about blessings and curses? What was the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached? Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And on the other hand, Matthew 23 contains the curses from Christ himself on all who would be false believers, frauds. Their doom is eternal destruction, for they have rejected the maker of the new covenant, 
Jesus Christ. And seven times Jesus says, woe to you, 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 woe to you. Curses. How about witnesses? The miracles of Jesus bore witness to him and to the new covenant. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. So as miracles, God, the father himself is a witness. John 5, 37. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. In other words, but I have. Third, Christ bears witness to himself. There's no one greater to tell of Christ than Christ himself. John 8, 18, I am the one that bears witness about myself. And the apostles bear witness to Christ. 2 Peter 1, 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. How many witnesses in Deuteronomy? Four. How many witnesses to Christ? Four. And is there an historical prologue to the new covenant document, the New Testament? Behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that is, of course, Revelation 22, 12 and 13. You see, the new covenant has all the same elements. It's just a covenant in Christ now. Well, next time, We're going to do the preamble and the historical prologue. We'll call it the history of covenant salvation. And just as a reminder, because not all of you were here for all of this, every series in the Pentateuch has one key word in the sermon titles. Genesis was kingdom. Exodus was Israel. Leviticus was holiness. Numbers was maturity. And in Deuteronomy, I sort of cheated. I had to hyphenate two words to make it into one. Covenant salvation. That's the theme all the way through. So next time we'll get started on this and we'll do the first four chapters or so, the history of covenant salvation. There you go. Now you know how to study Deuteronomy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant in Christ. He is a savior that we can see at least at this point through the words of the New Testament. We know his name. We know his character. We know his work. We know his witnesses. We know all about him thanks to you and your revelation. And yet all through history, you have always offered grace and salvation by faith. And how thrilling it is to know that there will be a day when we meet countless faithful Israelites who came to saving faith, not in a savior who had already come, but in a savior yet to come. And so we look forward to that day to meet all of these, our brothers and sisters in the Lord the one people of God, all saved through Christ. Lord, I pray for these coming weeks as we go through Deuteronomy. I pray that you would give each person here and each one even listening online, Lord, the, the diligence and the um, determination to read through Deuteronomy and to make this a part of their lives for the next few weeks. I pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we see that in Deuteronomy, as in every book of the Bible, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And through it, might we be more like our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.